Open your Bibles, please, to Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians chapter 5. Again, this week we'll read verses 13 to 16. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This last week, we have a men's Bible study and prayer group that meets Wednesday morning, and I encourage those of you who don't come to come. Um, it meets at 6.30 at the church office, so it's more central than out here. Um, but this last week, I was trying to explain to the men um, that when we have teaching, oftentimes we don't think consciously about the uh, method of teaching or the overarching theme, but we examine details. And this week, um, I want to make a couple of comments about the overarching uh, sort of the superstructure over this part of the book of Galatians, because um, so much of the content of a book is what you get by that superstructure, and not simply the words. But the way to do this in this particular week is to be very careful in examining the words. And we're going to have at least three or four sermons just on this verse 13. So I want you to look with me at it again. It says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now last week, if you were here, we spent our week studying the call of God. Is that me? I think it might be. Let's hope it is. I think it was like... No, I don't think it is me. Are we all right? We'll see. Well, do something because it's going to drive people crazy. What do you think it is? Oh, I love them. They help me whenever I have needs, which is what a son is supposed to do. Right? Okay. I'll probably walk away from this, so you'll have to be patient with me. All right. Um, last week, if you were here, you will remember that we spent the week talking about the call of God. I don't want any of you to come each week and to be oblivious to the significance of 
of this word call in verse 13, you were called. If you're here this morning, you're here because God put you here. You're not here because you made your own free decision that you would come. Now, God works to bring you here by causing you to make a decision to come. I'm not denying that you don't choose, that you don't make decisions. And I'm not denying that when it comes to the worship of God and faith, that we don't exercise our own wills. There's no question that we have a will and that we do exercise our will. But in America today, the only understanding we have of freedom is totally unhindered, unfettered, absolutely, completely free choice, free will. And this is simply non-existent. It's non-existent uh, because we have live in a culture. We were talking yesterday, Stephen was teaching us about the nature of culture, that culture exerts an influence on us that's almost invisible. And so maybe precisely at the point that you think you're most free of the Christian trip, all right, you are actually most in bondage because you're just living according to the culture of America. And that's not freedom at all. Um, and so we need to emphasize the fact that God, if we believe in Jesus Christ, that it is because God called us and that God gave us the freedom to choose. And so even the freedom we have to choose is a gift from God. And so we need to bow our knees before God and to acknowledge that he is the source of everything good in our lives and most particularly the freedom that we have as brothers in Christ. Now this week I want to turn to a th more thorough examination of the nature of this freedom to which we are called. Last week we examined the call of God. Now this week that call was to freedom. And this theme of freedom through Christ and in Christ is struck constantly in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Look above in chapter 5, at the first verse that we see there, if you would please, in your Bibles. And you'll see verse 1 says, it, is, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, in America today, we understand that there is a connection between freedom and slavery and that it's not a good connection, that the one is in opposition to the other. And so the Apostle Paul in verse 1 is exhorting us to freedom. He's pointing out that Christ set us free and then he's telling us, grab your freedom, stand firm in your freedom. Don't become a slave again. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then in verse 13, so 13 verses later, he says again at the beginning of our text this morning, for you were called to freedom. So the Galatians were called to freedom. Now, let's admit that this is not the way, and I'm going to teach you a word that, uh, that Microsoft Word doesn't recognize and say, says is a misspelling, and it's the word worldling. It's a very useful word. Um, maybe you would say the word unbeliever or non-Christian, but I don't think that communicates well enough the condition of those who are outside of Christ. They're not simply unbelievers because that's a vacuum. They actually are worldlings. They are people who live for this world. And so it's an old word, but let's resurrect it again. Uh, pagans are people who live for this world. Worldlings are people that live for this world. And you remember I said a week or two ago that this table of communion and that the baptism are intended to make a distinction between worldlings and godlings, if you will, uh, between those who are pagans and those who believe, between the unbeliever and the Christian. Now, worldlings do not see us in freedom. Let's admit this. 
If you go up to a worldling, somebody who uh, is maybe not opposed uh, out loud to Christ, but somebody who is just indifferent, somebody who just simply doesn't believe, somebody who's just simply callous. And if you go up to them and ask them what they believe about Christians, now we're not talking about uh, people who have family values and vote Republican and have the civic religion of America, all right? but we're talking about people who are true believers. If you ask them what a true believer lives like and what their life is like, do you think that they would characterize it as being a life of freedom? Now be honest. What do you think is the normal thought about Christians? Well, the normal thought about Christians is that Christians are in bondage, that they're slaves, that they have uh, a, a petty and a little and a, and a stingy view of life, that they live in bondage to that, that they're mean-spirited, that they don't have generosity, uh, that they're illiberal. And even that in itself is an indication that all the movement, all the progress, all the, the, the open view is on the side of liberals, you know, that they're for freedom. Now, I hate to say it because it's so heinous that we hate, even those of us that are most committed on this issue hate hearing about it. I don't like to even talk about it. But the best example of this today, of how the, the world sees Christians as being slaves and as being in bondage and as being tight and nasty and uh, punitive, is the issue of abortion where the world, the Supreme Court, people who defend abortion have somehow managed to get the world to think that uh, Christians are against choice. You know, uh, they are pro-choice, but we're anti-choice. That Christians are against the right of self-determination of the woman. That Christians are negative. Now, you know, I don't have any objection to saying, yes, on this issue, I'm not pro-life, I'm anti-abortion. But why? What is abortion? Remember, it is the killing of an unborn child in the womb of his mother. This is what abortion is. And yet our world has flipped it around so that Christians, as they oppose abortion, appear to be negative, tight, stingy, in bondage, enslaved, and against ultimately freedom. And the great watchword of the pro-abortion movement is what? Freedom of choice. And this is a perfect example of the hypocrisy of the world. But the world doesn't go out intending to be hypocrites. The world goes out intending to be free. And not having the freedom of Christ is immediately placed in irretrievable bondage to Satan so that they can't think properly, they can't speak properly, they can't act properly, and so that women end up paying men to kill their children. The most precious gift a woman is given, the ability to create a new life. And she is brought to the point where she believes that she's, she's what? She's expressing her freedom of choice by killing this precious gift that God has given her. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, it's not a precious gift if it's the result of rape. That's not the point. It's not the point. You don't make law on the basis of a 1% to 3% frequency rate. Rape almost never, ever, for certain uh, very interesting reasons, almost never produces a pregnancy. 
go onto the web, you'll see this quickly. So the issue isn't rape. The issue isn't incest. The issue isn't uh, fetal deformity. If you take all the horrible situations where we should have freedom to do what we want with abortion, it, it amounts to less than 3%. 97% of abortions are the result of a desire for convenience and freedom. And the, and, and the language of it, the rhetoric of it, is freedom of choice. All right? And so in those cases, how do we get to the point where the worldling looks at us and says, you're against freedom, and the world kills the unborn and says, that's freedom, freedom of choice. How do we get to that point? Well, Paul says, you were called to freedom, brethren, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And Jesus, when he speaks of us, and when he points us to the path, he shows us that it is only by the life of faith that we do escape slavery and become free. Now, who is right? Is it Paul and Jesus? Is it the words of the Holy Spirit? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the world? I don't say this out of mean-spiritedness. I say this because of my love for those who are lost and don't know Christ. But the worldling looks at us and pities us, but it really is the worldling who we should love and pity. What is the condition of the one who is not in Christ? The condition, absolutely, no question about it, for those who are not in Christ is that they are backward, that they are wrong-headed, that they are deluded, that they are blind and deaf, that they are, and here in Bloomington, let us say it, that they are ignorant That they think that they live in freedom, but they are in complete bondage to Satan. They think they are masters of their own destiny, but they only live to fill up the cup of God's wrath. That they think they are wise, but they have become fools. That they think that they are, but they are not. That they think that they are rich, but they are poor. They think that they live, but they are walking dead men. They think that they at least have pleasure, but they have no pleasure, but only tears and pain and sorrow and only death and hell awaiting them. Now, this is what is at stake in the gospel. There's no compromise. There's no middle ground. There is no demilitarized zone with our souls. Every man, every woman, and every child here exists in one of two states. The state of freedom or the state of slavery to Satan. Those are the only two possible positions. We are either in Christ or out of Christ. Now, you can imagine, if the world really is this heavy, if life really is this glorious, if there really is this much at stake, you can imagine that as they say over and over again in Calvin and Luther when you read them, man's knavish interest. In other words, the, the sort of uh, cheap, uh, cheapening inclination we all have with the world to turn all spiritual things into a super Walmart, right? Okay. You can imagine that if life is really this heavy with this much at stake, that we are corrupt enough that we would want to sort of set 
the scheme up, set up the game, set up the world and life and eternity in such a way that we can easily manipulate which side people are on. Right? You know, if there really is heaven and hell, and if the Lord's table and, and baptism indicate the true paths that people are on, the broad way that many find that leads to hell, the narrow way that few find that leads to heaven. And if we come to a table and the table was meant to divide, you can imagine that we would want to make the elements themselves, the water of baptism, and the cup and the bread of the Lord's table into the things that, that, that make the difference. Because our knavish interest is always to try to jack God around, you know, to manipulate Him, to push Him and pull Him and, and tug at Him and, and to make Him beholden to us and, and to have everything set up in such a way that we can control it. Because after all, aren't we into control? If our wife doesn't have the gas tank filled after she's used the car for the week and we're on our way to church. It infuriates us, right? Why? Because we're out of control. So when it comes to eternity, wouldn't you want to control it? And see, this is what's at stake with this whole issue of circumcision. The Galatians want to control their eternal destiny and they want to do it with something that's able to be easily manipulated. Now, I didn't say something that's painless. It's good to have a little bit of pain if after all you're going to get heaven. So circumcision is done and it's painful. But nevertheless, there's a moment when it's not done. There's a moment when it's done. And, and from that moment to this, you're transferred from death to life, right? Doesn't that sound like how God ought to work? You know, in other words, anything but this day after day life of taking up our cross and following Christ. Anything but discussions of love. Because, you know, when it really comes down to it, for instance, you guys, you know, you're right here. I don't know who you are, and I would prefer not to have anybody else that I have to love. Actually, who are you? No, not now. Later. <laughs> I mean, isn't that how we all live? Isn't it true that we would rather have God able to be manipulated with water, with bread, with wine, with circumcision. Okay? And so you understand the context for the book of Galatians. Well, of course, if false shepherds are going to come in and they want to milk the people, they'll say to them, just be circumcised and everything's okay. And Paul comes in, what does he say? Love God and love one another. And I tell you, if you give yourselves into circumcision, that you have no more interest in Christ. Well, here you've got one objective reality, all right? And I'm not denying the objective reality of being in Christ, but here you have something you can do, something you can control. You know, we have a big trough, we fill it with water, dunk them down, pick them up, and the souls spring again, you know? You think of Tetzel and, and the indulgences, you know, put the coin in, you know, the souls spring again. And so if you look at what's going on in the book of Galatians, you see that the whole book is this, this polemic, this intense rant of Paul against this desire we have to have heaven and hell turn on physical actions like circumcision or today like baptism and like the Lord's Supper. And so he says, if you go ahead and give yourself back to this kind of jacking God around with these little acts that you do, he says, I tell you, you have no interest in Christ. You've gone back to bondage. Well, then we come here and we go, you know, we get it. We say, okay, the overarching theme of the book of Galatians is this issue that you're not saved through the law. You're not saved through doing things. All right. 
Jesus Christ has come to put an end to the law and for us to be saved by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. We've all learned that, right? And so we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. All right? And then, what? Twelve verses later, we hit verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. We're all ready to emote. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, freedom, brother. Freedom. You know, not circumcision and not the law. All right? You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Remember I said the, fee- the, the theme of freedom is all through the book of Galatians. And what we have <clears throat> is those who are not in faith, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, use the language of freedom, claim to believe in freedom, uh, claim that Christians aren't free. And it's all a cover for them being in bondage to sin. But the interesting thing is when we say no, we will live by faith in Jesus Christ. The minute we put our faith in Jesus Christ and have learned that circumcision and baptism and and the Lord's Supper can't save us, and they are not the things that give us freedom, although God uses them to do that, um, then what do we do? We immediately, our knavish interests, uh, turn from thinking we can jack God around by baptism to thinking that there's no need for us to live according to the law of God. Do you understand this? Because we always tend to, to destroy God's truth. And it doesn't stop when we're Christians. This just doesn't stop. I know you want to think it stops, you know, that if you, if you finally realize that circumcision and baptism, the Lord's Supper can't save you, and you refuse to have these objective things that you can jack God around with, and you learn that the law is not the way that you're saved, then you should be done with the law because it's so complicated to be freed to the law. <laughs> if we're freed from the law, how can we be freed to the law? Do you understand this? And this is what we go through constantly as Christians. And this is one of the things that divides the Christian churches in America today. And by the way, I hate the fact that the Christian church has called itself the Christian church. It is really obnoxious. Because every time in this area I say Christian church, you don't know whether I'm talking about Jesus' church or the non-denominational denomination or the denominational non-denomination that uses that name and claims that it is the Christian church. It just is irritating. It's irritating in writing and preaching because nobody ever knows what you're talking about, the Christian church. And then you've got the Church of Jesus Christ, which was last week I was writing, right? And I thought, okay, fine, I can't use the Christian church because everybody will think I'm talking about the baptismal regeneration people, right? So I think I'll I'll say the Church of Jesus Christ. And then immediately this little voice went off in my head and said of the Latter-day Saints. (laughs) You know, I thought, what am I going to (laughs) do? So what do we call it? I don't know. All right, enough of my problems. So here you have turning away from salvation. You turn away from circumcision, from baptism, and from the Lord's Supper. Don't don't get me wrong. I am not saying that we are not baptized, and I'm not saying that we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I'm not saying that those are not commanded by God and that God expects us to be obedient. I'm saying that we don't look at them as means whereby we can objectively jack God around. Manipulate Him. You know, marionette, puppet strings, baptism, the Lord's Supper. All right? Circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper. All right? And then we move over here and we've got it. No, I can't do that. 
the law does not save. It is faith in Jesus Christ. All right? And immediately, what do we do? We say, well, if faith in Jesus Christ is what saves me, then let's sin that grace may abound. And you know I'm quoting from the book of Romans, right? And you know that it's impossible for you to receive the doctrine of salvation by grace alone without you immediately turning that grace into a license for you to sin. You come Sunday morning, you know that you have not loved your wife as you ought. You know it's nowhere near the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. You know you've put your own interests before the interests of your wife. You know you haven't disciplined your children. You know you haven't instructed your own soul. That You haven't been faithful in prayer. You haven't been faithful in scripture. You haven't been faithful in church. That you've, that you've not cared about the people of God, the people in the pews. You come to church and then you think to yourself, it, it don't matter. It don't matter. It's not the law that saves us. We're free in Christ. It's not the law. And, and so you sing, and what you're really doing is you're really using the freedom of Christ as a way of silencing the conscience that the Holy Spirit has reawakened in you as a gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now, brothers and sisters, I'm not deluded. When I look at you, I don't think you're nice. Okay? I don't think you're clean. I don't think all the inclinations of your heart are good because you're a woman or because you're a child. I just don't think that. For one thing, I know you, but much more than I know you, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? I know myself. And granted, I'm not a woman. I'm a man. So maybe I'm more intimate of men's failures than women's, but I have daughters, although they are perfect. <laughs> every man tends to think women are perfect and men are scumbags and I think every woman tends to think that women are perfect and men are scumbags <laughs> oh man <laughs> okay I, I, I know the elders are going to get angry at me for divulging that little secret, but I'll just have to take my blows when they come. <laughs> okay, I'm back. That wasn't in the manuscript. Well, I'm out of time, and I want to hammer, hammer this home. Remember I said for weeks and weeks that the, that, that the doctrine of baptismal regeneration is the modern counterpart to the Judaizers in Galatia and that among conservative evangelical Protestants today there is a great movement towards sacramentalism and that this is a great, great evil and danger. And I can't emphasize this strongly enough. God did not use Paul to set them free from circumcision and the law of circumcision so that we can be bound by the law of baptism and think that that saves us. And if you think that this isn't what is at stake in the controversy between Rome and Protestantism, what there is left of it, you are not wise and you don't know the Word and you don't know church history. And there are tremendous numbers of men that were trained at my seminary who have now gone into the Roman Catholic Church. I have no question in my mind that much of that movement is so that we can be done with the law of love. 
that we can no longer have to come and confess our sins every Sunday morning and put ourselves under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this constant washing. If our wives wash our clothes every single week, why would we think that we could come to church and not be worried about being washed? And that is what is at stake with the doctrine that baptism saves us, which is the doctrine that the Christian church holds to. There is no question that the Christian church holds to baptismal regeneration. It's in the guise of Protestantism. It looks very Protestant, but it is the same doctrine as the Roman Catholic Church. And there is absolutely no question that we are seduced by that today. And that's the argument in the main of the book of Galatians. But I'm telling you, the minute you get in your mind that neither circumcision nor baptism nor the Lord's Supper are what saves us, but faith in Jesus Christ and his work alone. Amen? Amen. The minute you get that fixed in your brain, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to say, well, then let's sin that grace may abound. Do you understand that? Because you've just gotten done with the law. And that's why this last part of the book of Galatians is this, is this like screaming return of Paul with the law. Now, it is the law of love. It does differ from the law of circumcision and baptism. It differs from the law of the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. It, it, it is different. And there is much of the law of the Old Testament that's abrogated, that's done with, Obviously, we're done with sacrificing lambs when the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of the world, has himself been sacrificed. It would be perverse to go back to the unreality that pointed forward to the reality and start doing it all over when Jesus is the Lamb of God and he has been sacrificed. So there is much of the law in the Old Testament that's done with. But how can anybody think that we're done with the law? Thou shalt not commit adultery. How can anybody read Jesus saying the man that looks at a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery and think that the New Testament has anything at all to do with being done with any responsibility to be pure and to be holy in our marriage relationships? How can anybody think that we're done with the law of not bearing false witness against our neighbor, of not coveting our neighbor's possessions and his wife, of not taking the Lord God's name in vain? Now, we'll get into this next week. What is the law of love? And how, how does that free us as Christians? How is that freedom as Christians? But I want you to see this pivot point. You're moving away from the law of circumcision and baptism and the Lord's Supper as being the things that save us. You're moving into faith where you look at Christ and you see His righteousness and you say, the righteousness of Christ is my righteousness. And then immediately you take the righteousness of Christ and what do we do with it? But we turn it into license and the freedom for us to live without compunction of conscience. And Jesus was never given to us for that. We are freed from the law. Come on. To the law. We are freed. Say it with me. From the law, we are freed to the law. It has nothing to do with our salvation. But the Bible says this. If you don't live according to that law, you will go to hell. Do you understand that? It has nothing to do with our salvation. But the Bible says that if we do not live according to that law, the law of love of Christ and love of one another, which sums up all of the law, if we don't live according to it, then we are going to hell. Now, how can that be? 
Listen, it is not my responsibility to explain Scripture away to you. If you don't like the weight of Scripture, it is your problem that you've got to get right with the Holy Spirit. But I defy you to show me from Scripture that this is not what Scripture teaches. All of man's knavish interests are to give him freedom that isn't freedom, to give him freedom that's licensed, to, to take the grace of Christ and turn it into license. And I'm going to read you just one text, but it is the classic text to deal with this. And you can guess what book it's from. And it's from the book of Hebrews. All right? Listen to this from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, so they're teaching... What? Not salvation by circumcision or baptism of the Lord's Supper, but faith in Christ. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of our own works. Is that what the text says? No, it says full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see the, 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 the almost silent and invisible back and forth of faith in God and holding tight. You see, this, this is the way Scripture does it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Hold fast, He's faithful. Hold fast, He's faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that sounds nice and evangelical, doesn't it? At this point, we can all go home and feel good. We can just say, yes, we'll hold fast to the faith. And we'll no longer uh, give ourselves to turning away from God. We'll no longer deny the blood of Christ. Uh, We're going to look on Jesus Christ in full assurance of faith. Our consciences are clean because they've been washed by the blood of Christ. Our bodies have been washed with pure fa- uh, water. We have hope. We will not waver because he who promised is faithful. And therefore, yes, it is right that we gather each Sunday and we will exhort one another to do this. And uh, all the more as the day comes, the day approaches, Maranatha, Maranatha. Uh, and then we all go out and we read our Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins books, you know. Um, what are they called? The rapture or what are they called? Yeah, left behind, you know. All the more as we see the day approaching and then we dwell on the day approaching and it, it's so happy, you know. It's like this cartoon I saw in a, in a pastor's magazine once where the pastor was putting the names of the next month's sermons up on the board. And uh, the name of the first sermon was God Loves You and the name of the second sermon was God Loves Me and the name of the third sermon was God Loves Us and he was putting the fourth sermon's title up. You know, every day in every way, the world is getting better and better, and, and the word will return soon. And doesn't this sound good? It sounds evangelical, right? And then this is what the Holy Spirit says next in this text. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what's the knowledge of the truth? It's Jesus Christ and his work for us. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And we go, this is nasty. You know, somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed. I don't want to be unspiritual about this, but whoever the author to Hebrews is obviously did not have a happy childhood. Hadn't been instructed by proper reform doctrine. Who in their right mind out of reformed theological communities would ever write something like this? And this is why the Bible is God's book. It's not mine. Then he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, brothers and sisters, this is God's good news to us. How could this be good news? It's good news because it's warning you that you're going to take the grace of God and turn it into license for sin. And that if you give yourself to sin after knowing the grace of God, there is no sacrifice of Christ left for you. And this is intended to motivate us to flee from this uh, libertinism, this antinomianism, this, uh, this Americanism. This is American Christianity. This is evangelicalism. And then he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, Every week, because we live in a consumer society and because a super Walmart is going in right over there, I am aware that you all constantly make choices as to whose truth you're going to listen to. I know that today I live by your choice. Every Sunday you make a decision whether to place yourself under my instruction, my preaching. And I just ask you this. Who is faithful to you and to the souls of you and your children? Is it the one who would lead you to give them himself, to give yourself for your children, to give themselves to the freedom that is licensed, that causes there to be no compunction of conscience, that there's no prayer of confession, that there is no warning, that you would never ever hear this warning of Scripture proclaimed from the pulpit? Or is it this church where the elders and the deacons and the Titus two women are adamant that they will have a pastor who will warn you as well as encourage you? And I say, is the book of Galatians soft enough that it ends with just, you know, God loves you, God loves me, God loves us? Is that how the book of Galatians ends? It does end with love, but it has warnings. The Hebrews has warnings. Jesus had warnings. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? I prophesied in your name. And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. You evil men. Now, let me end with Luther. Because how could you read a section of Galatians without reading Luther's commentary on it? Luther says this. He says, the evil of turning the grace of God into license. This evil is common and the most pernicious of all others that Satan stirs up in the doctrine of faith. Namely, that in very many he turns the liberty spoken of here in Galatians 
that Christ has made us free into the liberty of the flesh. And he says, therefore, danger is on both sides. Although the one is more tolerable than the other, if grace or faith is not preached, no man can be saved for it's faith alone that justifies and saves. On the other side, if faith is preached, most men understand the doctrine of faith according to the flesh and draw the liberty of the spirit into being the liberty of the flesh. All boast themselves, now think of evangelicalism today, all boast themselves to be professors of the gospel, to be believers in the gospel. And all brag of Christian liberty, and yet serving their own lusts, they give themselves to covetousness, pleasures, pride, envy, and such other vices. No man does his duty faithfully. No man charitably serves the necessity of his brother. And then listen, here's a pastor, and he just... He just he says, oh, it's 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 terrible. He says, the grief of this makes me sometimes so impatient that many times I wish such pigs that tread precious pearls under their feet were still remaining under the tyranny of the pope. For it is impossible that this people of Gomorrah should be governed by the gospel of peace. You see, Luther. He just busted the whole kingdom up. So it wasn't any longer baptism in the Lord's Supper or mass, indulgences, the whole rigmarole. And then immediately he looks at his congregation and he says, I wish that they would, this people of Gomorrah, I wish they would just go back under the Pope because now they've taken the precious blood of Christ and they've turned it into a justification for sin. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not Luther getting up on the bad side of the bed. This is the heart of the Holy Spirit with us. We are always tending to do this, and we just simply can't. It's not biblical. And it doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor God for the blood of Christ to be a means whereby we can live without compunction of conscience. God isn't honored when we don't love Him and when we don't love each other. And so Scripture is loving to us, and it gives us freedom. And it is the freedom to live in a way that shows our love for God and for one another. Now, that's the true gospel. And if any of you think that I've twisted Scripture, you have a duty to speak to me, to speak to the elders, to speak to one another, and to warn one another against what I've said. But only insofar as you believe that I have not been faithful to Scripture. Not to Chuck Swindoll, not to R.C. Sproul, not to John MacArthur, but to the Word. And I pray that when I die and I'm long gone, that your children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, will have pastors who will give you the true doctrine of Scripture and who will not twist it to suit what their and your itching ears want to hear. Okay, you think I'm wacko. I am. But I'll be hanged if I'm going to change. I will not change. I will die this way because I love you. And I love my own soul and the souls of my family. I don't want them led to hell. I want us to love the Lord and to love one another and to live in the freedom of not our flesh and our desires, but the freedom of the law of love. Let's pray. Father.